0: Welcome to Act and Unwind, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Eric Cohn. I want to thank you for listening. I want to ask that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate right now to the show notes for this episode, where you'll find a link to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else where you listen to find podcasts. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts so as to help more people find our show. Before we get going, I want to note that Acton Unwind will be taking a break for the next two weeks for Christmas and New Year's. We'll be back on Monday, January 8th. Today, I'll be joined later in the program by Noah Gould, Acton's alumni and student programs manager, and Emily Zanotti, contributing editor here at Acton. This week, we'll discuss a Church of Satan display in the Iowa State House, and the wisdom of effective altruism. But first, I want to go to Hong Kong, where the trial of Jimmy Lai is getting underway today. And to discuss this story, I'm pleased to be joined by Mark Clifford. Mark is the president of the Committee for Freedom in Hong Kong and is the author of Today, Hong Kong, Tomorrow, the World, What China's Crackdown Reveals About Its Plans to End Freedom Everywhere. Previously, Mark was a director of Next Digital, the publisher of the pro-democracy Apple Daily newspaper, executive director of the Hong Kong-based Asia Business Council, the editor-in-chief of the South China Morning Post in Hong Kong, and publisher and editor-in-chief of The Standard in Hong Kong. He held senior editorial positions at Businessweek and the Far Eastern Economic Review in Hong Kong and Seoul, and has received numerous prizes and awards for his books and journalism. Mark, thanks so much for joining us. As I mentioned, it was really late last night for those of us here on the East Coast of the United States when Jimmy Lai's trial under national security law charges finally got underway after several delays. Uh, Two previous trials on different charges uh, where Jimmy was convicted, including a fraud charge uh, earlier in the year where he got about five years in prison as a sentence for that. But this is this is the big thing. This is the big trial that we have been anticipating really since the end of 2020 when Jimmy was arrested under these national security law charges. What do we know right now as this trial is getting started?
1: Well, first of all, you know, great to be uh, back with you and Acton. Um Uh, talking about this issue that, you know, I think was concerned so many of us uh, who are concerned about freedom in uh, Hong Kong and in China. First of all, we shouldn't really dignify it by thinking of it as a trial. I mean, it's better to think of it as performance art. I mean, perhaps even theater of the absurd, because we know what the outcome is going to be. The secretary for security in Hong Kong has boasted about a 100 percent conviction rate for national security law cases. Um, the law came into to effect in 2020, about three and a half years ago. And, um, uh, every, everyone's been convicted since then, so Jimmy Lai is is uh, is certainly not going to be an exception. So we shouldn't be looking for for a, a reason court justice or any sense of of you know justice being found out through this process of discovery. Um, we do know, as you said, that uh, Jimmy Lai has been in prison for uh, will be three years uh, consecutively on December thirty first? That's more than a thousand days in prison, almost all of it in solitary confinement. He's allowed out for 50 minutes a day to exercise, and um, he's he's being held while I guess while they practice for this show trial. Um, so um, yeah, it's 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 pretty discouraging because here you've got a a man in his mid 70s, a devout Catholic, always committed um, to nonviolence and peace. But he wanted the Chinese to, to live up to their promise that Hong Kong people could have democracy. Um, when the British left in 1997, they negotiated an agreement with the Chinese that Hong Kong would be able to not just keep its existing freedoms, its civil liberties that it had under British colonialism, but that it would go further and that the Hong Kong people would be able to elect their own city council. It's called the Legislative Council. And their own mayor, the chief executive. Well, those promises have been rubbish, just trashed, thrown out the window. And instead, the guy who who points this out, Jimmy Lai, is in solitary confinement in in a show trial. So that's kind of the starting point.
0: Could you expand a little on the uh, I know we can both do chapter and verse on this, but I'll let you do describe to anyone who's listening to this um, one who hasn't seen our documentary The Hong Konger. We'll put a link to that in the show notes, and I encourage everybody listening this to watch it. You'll get um, an explanation of this next question in there as well. But tell people who are listening about the national security law and the charges that Jimmy is facing under it.
1: Yeah. First of all, yeah. Shout out to that excellent documentary, The Hong Konger. that you. and Father Sirico and others worked on and I guess now has about three million views. Um, You know, well done. I think for anybody who's interested in Jimmy Lai, this is an indispensable starting point. You really get a sense of who this man is. Well, the national security law, uh, I guess, is a product of frustration on the part of the Chinese leadership that Hong Kong people wouldn't kowtow to them. And it was, um, it was rushed through secretly uh, without um, approval or even uh, any kind of viewing by the Hong Kong legislature or the Legislative Council um, at the end of June, June 30th, 2020, 11 p.m. at night. Reportedly, even the chief executive of Hong Kong didn't see the, the law until earlier that day when it was passed by the Standing Committee of the National People's Congress up in Beijing. Basically, the law is so broad that it just criminalizes anybody who wants to criticize the government. So it's got very broad categories. Uh, The one um, uh, secession, um, collusion with a foreign power is the one that Jimmy Lai is being tried on. Basically, if if as Jimmy did, you go to the United States and you talk to U.S. officials and you call for. Um, sanctions on Hong Kong officials, you call for the U.S. to stand up for democracy in Hong Kong, they can throw you in prison for life. And that's what that's what they want to do with Chimney. I mean, it's such a broad, sweeping, um, vague law that it's it's hard to talk about in any legal sense, except that anything they don't like, they decide is illegal. And then the reply, they are. Sorry. And I should add on top of that, they have done away with jury trials china promised that the british system of jury trials would continue instead all these cases are held before a uh, hand picked a secret hand picked uh, group of judges who are who are considered politically reliable i should also say that um uh, in common law tradition people uh, there's a presumption for bail that before you're tried and convicted of a charge that you you should you should be able to go out on bail in this, there's a presumption against bail. So you lock people up, you don't have trials in Jimmy's case for over a thousand days, and uh and you have it before some handpicked judges on some, you know, kind of far fetched and sweeping charges. So um yeah, that's what it's about.
0: There's also in that common law tradition, uh allowances for having representation of your choice as an advocate before the court. And as uh, I know, you and I know, the uh, Tim Owen, who is a barrister, UK barrister, who had been Jimmy's choice to represent him in this trial was denied by Hong Kong officials to represent him. Uh, He does have legal representation, but it is important to point out that it is not the legal representation of the person, the advocate that he wanted.
1: Absolutely. Very important point, Eric. And, and again, this was part of the uh, the agreement that um, Britain and China developed and then was codified in the um, so-called the basic law kind of mini constitution that governs Hong Kong, that the, the existing legal practices could continue. And those include the right to have the lawyer that you want, even if that lawyer is from abroad. Um, I I don't want to comment on anything specifically about Hong Kong, um, his Hong Kong legal team. I'm sure they're doing their best. But it's worth pointing out that, you know, they're by definition, they're going to be more pliable because they're living and working in Hong Kong. And we've seen in the mainland where either defendants are uh, forced to take lawyers who are very tend to be pro-government or real lawyers who are really acting um, robustly on behalf of uh, their clients tend to lose their licenses and be thrown in jail themselves. So I think we can draw our conclusions. We see which way Hong Kong is going. And the fact that even in a show trial, even in the national security law cases where you have no jury, handpicked, politically reliable judges, and a 100% conviction rate, and again, think of this, what government would boast of a hundred percent conviction rate? This was the Secretary for Security who did so, unless you were a dictatorial government. It's the kind of thing you'd expect to be coming out of North Korea or something. Um the fact that they wouldn't even allow Tim Owen to be in that courtroom and to give a robust defense of Jimmy Lai, I think shows how how insecure they are about this this whole thing. I mean, it is amazing. From the outside, we look at it and say, you've got 100% conviction, right? What's the problem? But they also know that they're on trial in the eyes of the world right now. And Hong Kong wants to have it both ways. They want to say that they're an international financial center where there's rule of law, and yet there's clearly not. And you, if I can just mention in passing, you, as as you noted, I was a director of uh, the company that published Jimmy Lai's um, newspaper, uh, Apple Daily. <laughs> we were shut down by the government because they froze our bank accounts. I mean, you can't do business like that. And I don't think that the Hong Kong government really wants to uh, admit to the fact that you can't have rule of law and just go around seizing companies. We were a publicly listed company on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, they just shut us down.
0: Yeah, these, these are not the things that international centers of business and finance do, and if they want to continue to be a center of international business and finance, and it really is a question that uh, people in the West are going to have to start grappling with, which is if you're going to try to think of Hong Kong under the old understanding, if the impression that you're going to have in your mind when Hong Kong is mentioned is, you know, like what, what it is for me, uh, the first thing that I think of is uh, Milton Friedman's 1980 Free to Choose series, where this is his presentation of the platonic ideal of what a market economy looks like. That's not the circumstance anymore. And I think people in the West really need to start to grapple with that. There's um, uh, our mutual friend, Mark Simon, uh, who appears in the film, makes a point about people that he knew in Hong Kong who were opposed to uh, the extradition bill, which is not the national security law, different effort to impose uh, a a law to crack down on dissent there. So like all these business people, the la- they were opposed to it because the last thing that they wanted was to get into some kind of a business dispute, and then they get hauled up to Beijing to have it adjudicated. You know, This is not the way that a city that wants to be a center like this behaves. But they, you're right that they're trying to have it both ways. You, you keep the veneer of people's preconceptions about hong kong that is the center of business and finance while the underlying operation the way that it is being administered the way that the rule of law is being corrupted is what we've been talking about here
1: yeah no i think that's those excellent points uh maybe you can help me out here but i i struggle to think of another international financial center that holds political prisoners as a matter of course and uh Hong Kong is unfortunately, I've struggled on,
0: I've struggled on that and maybe, and I have to look into it more closely than, you know, perhaps some, place like Dubai in the United Arab Emirates. um, you know, certainly there are human rights concerns attached to a country like the United Arab Emirates. I don't quite know if we would qualify it as political prisoners in the same way, but it, it, it is a, it is a different circumstance. I, I wanted to make one other point as well about the national security law before we move on to the trial, which is, um. I've I don't know how many times I've seen the documentary that I was involved in making, but maybe it was somewhere around the hundredth viewing where Benedict Rogers, who runs Hong Kong Watch in the UK, makes this point about one of the clauses in the law that's extraterritorial. That it, it, if you are not a citizen, it doesn't matter if you're in Hong Kong or a citizen, if you are uh, like Benedict in uh, the United Kingdom. Every day criticizing what is going on in Hong Kong, he is in daily violation of the national security law. I'm in daily violation of the national security law every day promoting this documentary and talking about what's happening to people like Jimmy. So are you. So I I think there are – that's something I want people to understand of just how much of a corruption of the rule of law this really is, that it, it applies beyond the borders and beyond the citizenship of the city itself.
1: Yeah, no, excellent point. Um, let, let's let circle back to that in a second, but I wanted to pick up. I'm so glad you mentioned Milton Friedman because uh, he, in fact, was very close friends with Jimmy Lai. And Jimmy, we forget that Jimmy wasn't, isn't just a dissonant uh, or kind of pro-democracy publisher. He was one of the most extraordinary entrepreneurs of his generation. He basically was the father of uh, fast fashion, Tadashi Yunai of Uniqlo, came down and and learned from Jimmy. Um he helped revolutionize the whole garment industry in terms of fast turnaround, fast production. Uh, he had an extraordinary, legendary career that made him wealthy. And it was after the 1989 killings in um, in China, in, in Tiananmen Square in particular, and around there, that he became radicalized and decided that radicalized in the sense of, realizing he couldn't just be a businessman, that free markets were inevitably, inextricably tied up with free people. And uh, so he turned his very considerable talents to the to the media. And so Friedman and Jimmy traveled together in China. Back, in fact, in 1993, uh, they were very close to each other until the end of, of Friedman's life. So it's it's so sad. I think. And in fact, um, one of the last pieces Milton Friedman wrote it was for The Wall Street Journal called Hong Kong Wrong, uh, about how Hong Kong was getting it wrong this was in 2006 um so you know the the fall of of Hong Kong is not just political but it is economic and we have to understand that if you go in and you seize and shut down illegally where i without a court order uh a newspaper you can do it to other businesses and in fact it's not only jimmy there's a remarkable man Herbert Chow who um ran a company called Chicky Duck it was a children's clothing wear company. And he, for speaking out actually against this extradition bill, um, he was punished and in fact, driven out of Hong Kong. His shop shut down, raided by the national security law police. This is the guy who's selling children's clothing, right? So we have to realize, as you said, Eric, it's really important for the international community to um, understand that Hong Kong as a global financial center, which in some ways was rivaling uh New York and London in terms of the Asian the third leg of the you know international financial uh capital markets um stool uh is is broken and uh there there's no rule of law and right now that's mostly um devoted or directed at people who are politically involved but I think as the Chickie Duck experience shows, obviously, as the experience of Apple Daily shows, really no one's safe if you cross the government. I mean, again, this is a children's clothing store yeah. that was that was driven out of business. I mean, Herbert was terrified. I mean, the staff was in there. I mean, the the national security law, police were in there shouting, cursing at their his staff, uh, treating them like, you know, he, he thought there had been some crime scene when he walked down the street and saw hundreds of police. And then he found out that they were there to raid. His children's clothing shop because he dared to speak out.
0: There's a two part question here. One, do you know how long we're expecting this trial to take? And two, as you mentioned, uh, that there had been there have been other trials under the national security law. I know the the kind of most prominent leading up to this was the Hong Kong 47. Has there anything in as you've observed uh, those other national security law trials? Is there anything that you've learned about what we can expect in Jimmy's trial?
1: Well, it's uh it's it's slated to run 80 business days 80 working days and when we consider there are holidays coming up the lunar new year as well as the kind of christmas new year uh period um it's going to stretch well into um into the spring um and then there will probably be a hiatus until the verdict is announced and another hiatus until the inevitable sentence is announced so i think we're looking at the middle of the year um at probably at the earliest before we see, uh, uh, a, a, a verdict in a sentence. Um, I, I guess the thing that's, uh, most striking is the way in which, you know, a once great, once robust legal system, uh, that the, in the key individuals in it, the judges and prosecutors have twisted and, um, squirmed to, to, to uh, I would say, turn the law into a, a pretzel to, um, to meet the political needs of their bosses, their masters. Um, And I think we saw that um, very clearly in the fraud trial that you alluded to before, where Jimmy had sublet a tiny portion, like half of one side of a tennis court in a vast news operation for his, uh, for a small family business, uh, you know, family office. Um, He paid rent on it, you know, there was, and that was somehow deemed a fraud charge. Now, look, there are lease violations, you know, I might, you know, have a no pets clause and I'm renting an apartment, I have a cat. I mean, this was that kind of that kind of thing. It never been a criminal charge in Hong Kong before. And all of a sudden, this they twisted this into a criminal charge and then sentenced him to five years and nine months in prison for what is at worst a technical lease violation and arguably not even that. So I think what we've seen is just a total perversion of the legal system. The sentences that have been given out, and again, I'm going back to non-national security law charges, sentences for things like uh, civil disobedience have increased wildly. I mean, it used to be community service or a couple of months. Now those same offenses are, are multiple years. So I think we're just seeing a twisting of the Hong Kong legal system, and we have a small group of um, culpable judges and um, and prosecutors who are doing the twisting. It's completely unnecessary, but they clearly have no integrity, no morality no sense of what rule of law really means. And yes, for saying that, I'm potentially in in violation of the national security law. You mentioned Benedict Rogers. He got a letter. I mean, I haven't gotten any letters or anything, but got a letter from them saying, if you don't shut down your website, and as you say, he's a British citizen working out of London with a British-based website. And they said, if you don't shut down your website... We're going to deem you in violation of the national security law. Um, we now have 13 Hong Kongers who are living overseas. At least one of them is a U.S. citizen, who have bounties on their heads—a uh, uh, million Hong Kong dollars, about 130,000 U.S. dollars for each one of them. If um, if someone turns them in and they're they're brought to so-called justice Hong Kong style, so it's really chilling
0: yeah the uh you you've touched on a couple of things that I want to get to there um first uh, i want to ask you is the expectation is your expectation that the ultimate sentence here is going to be life in prison
1: well he's Jimmy lies in his mid seventies so I think you know even a short sentence quote unquote short a sentence on the shorter side the minimum if he's convicted be five years I guess there are multiple counts so it could be five plus um You know, at the very least, you're talking about somebody who'd be released in his 80s, but if it's, you know, given the fact that from senior levels of the Beijing government, uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs and others, they have named him like a major so-called black hand, leader of a new gang of four, which is very ironic because that was, of course, a Maoist era the fact that Jimmy Lai is totally anti-Maoist, anti-totalitarian, anti-communist, that irony seems to have escaped them. But the fact that he's been singled out so much for punishment, uh, makes it likely to me that it's going to be a pretty heavy sentence. And again, we're not talking about a 25 year old guy, we're talking about a guy in his his mid 70s. And um, so any sentence, you know, potentially is a life sentence.
0: You mentioned in there, Benedict, uh, his situation being a UK citizen, we should note as well, so is Jimmy. Uh, Jimmy Lai is a citizen of the United Kingdom. And what I want to ask you about is we, um, in the last 24 or 48 hours, we have seen calls both from the United States State Department and from the United Kingdom's uh, Foreign Secretary, former Prime Minister David Cameron, uh, calls for Jimmy's release. Um, while I am certainly happy to see this, I think my first reaction was, uh, you know, much like Cheech Marin said of the Ghost Titanic arriving in New York Harbor and Ghostbusters 2, better late than never. Uh, But what is your impression of how— Um, The United States government to a lesser extent, but especially considering that Jimmy is a British citizen, how the U.K. government has handled this whole situation and why have they been so hesitant to really be forceful about it up until this most recent statement from from David Cameron?
1: Yeah, well, thanks. And let me digress just a little bit and Mm -hmm. underscore your point. He's a British citizen. He's only been a British citizen since he left china at the age of 12 and he's never traveled except to leave to go from um southern china into macau legally that was the only time he ever had a chinese travel document he's always had a british or colonial and then um since 1994 i believe full british citizenship and uh you know he's he needs to be protected as a british citizen um the british government until very very recently has allowed itself to I, i feel to be bullied by the chinese who Don't uh, have a very racially based sense of nationality. And their feeling is you're born Chinese, you're Chinese forever. And that's just not what international law says. Um, So I'm glad to see Britain um, standing up. I'm very glad to see David Cameron, who had a very uh, warm policy towards China, the so called golden era when he was prime minister. I'm really glad to see he met Jimmy Lai's son, Sebastian Lai. Um, his son was in his late 20s. He's spending a lot of time uh, campaigning for his father's release. Um, so, yeah, better late than never. Um, Britain has its own domestic and international issues, particularly following following Brexit. And I think they they continue to have the illusion that trade with China is really, really important to them. And as a result, I think they abase themselves. They just don't stand tall. And um, I hope that this is a sign of a, of a new new attitude, a new resolve on the part of Britain to really stand up. Um glad to see the U.S. is also voicing its support for Jimmy. Um, there's really only so much um, uh, the U.S. can do for a British citizen. So I think it's proper that Britain takes the lead on this, and I'm delighted to see it.
0: Something else that you mentioned just a moment ago was the, the way that the Chinese Communist Party is attempting to intimidate others who are activists, who are calling for human rights and democracy in Hong Kong or who are uh, activists on behalf of the Hong Kong people or or Jimmy specifically. One of them is uh, our mutual friend, Francis Wee. Um, Joey Su also, who, uh, used to work at committee for freedom in Hong Kong, who also appears in our documentary, the Hong Kong, or they were two of the people, uh, most recently who had that million dollar Hong Kong, uh, bounty placed on their head. Um, what has been, you know, what, what has been your reaction to, to this? And I, have been following Francis and Joey as, uh, as they've been talking about it. I mean, these are, these are people we should note who are citizens of the United States now, Um, Francis is the first person or the young, uh, the first person to be granted political asylum in the United States from Hong Kong. Uh, So this really is, you know, again, just like with the national security law going well beyond the bounds and the borders of Hong Kong and its citizenry to go after citizens in other countries who are advocating for human rights and for democracy and freedom of the people of Hong Kong.
1: Yeah. Uh, first of all, a slight uh, correction. Uh, Joey used to work for Hong Kong Democracy Council, oh, sorry. a great organization, but that's OK. Uh, Francis does work for us. I don't know that Frances has U.S. citizenship, but she does have asylum. Asylum, here. correct. Yes. Jo- yeah. <clears throat> Joey is a U.S. citizen. And as you say, it's outrageous, outrageous that peaceful people who are expressing their views about Hong Kong are literally being in the words of John Lee not my words the chief executive of Hong Kong they're like street rats and they're going to be hunted down for the rest of their lives and they're going to be hunted to the ends of the earth and i think it's just how can the how can the democratic free world um tolerate this so i think you know it's it's good to see the the response uh from from Britain, from the U.S., and from Australia, where the 13 activists are all living. But think about this. These are 13 people from Hong Kong who are living in three of the most uh, open democratic countries in the world, and yet China, or Hong Kong, but really China, feels emboldened to put a bounty on their head. Um, You know, I know people who who have the bounties on their head. And it's not really a very nice feeling. You just kind of wonder who's following you. And that's part of it is to intimidate people. They go after and it's not just people with bounties, but the Chinese and Hong Kong authorities are harassing and sometimes worse uh, relatives who are living in China or living in Hong Kong. I mean, it's just intolerable and i think you know i think we need to speak up we need to make sure that our uh, our governments are really pushing back robustly against the chinese and look this is part of a uh kind of all of state all of government all of party approach you look at what's happening the harassment of the philippine uh the philippines uh, naval ships uh in the south china sea you look at the the repeated uh incursions into taiwan um ID airspace uh, with with Chinese fighter pilots. Um, same thing up in Japan. I mean, China is really pushing its neighbors, and not just its neighbors, all of us, to accept its version of what how the world should be ordered. And that is obedience to Xi Jinping, his dictates. And I think this is why Jimmy Lai's case is way, way beyond any one individual. It's can one individual stand up to a totalizing government and a totalizing dictator in the form of Xi Jinping and say enough. I'm going to live by my values. I'm going to live as a free man. And China's saying, no, you can't. And I think the rest of the world is saying it's not just about Jimmy. It's about all of us. It's about freedom everywhere.
0: Well, as you noted, we're expecting this trial uh, and its different parts to last probably well into next year. So, Mark, I'm sure we will be talking to you again as all of this progresses. Mark Clifford, president of the Committee for Freedom in Hong Kong. Mark, thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Hey, thanks so much for your interest and for all the work you do for Hong Kong and for Jimmy Lai.
0: Let's move now to our second topic, and I want to bring in Noah Gould and Emily Zanati for this conversation. I'm going to read here from a piece in the Des Moines Register. The Satanic Temple of Iowa says a statue depicting the pagan idol—and I've never known how to pronounce this—Baphomet? Baphomet? Part of its controversial display in the Iowa Capitol had been destroyed. Quote, this morning we were informed by authorities that the Baphomet statue in our holiday display was destroyed beyond repair, the group said in a Thursday statement posted on Facebook. It did not indicate whether the vandal or vandals had been identified. They have since been the vandal uh, has since been identified. Um, The installation permitted under state rules governing religious displays in the building has come under debate and criticism um, by Iowa and national politicians. Presidential hopeful Ron DeSantis said on Tuesday of last week he joined a chorus of Republicans calling for its removal, while others in the GOP said that though it is offensive, it is a protected form of free speech. This is really the crux of this uh, conversation, and I found the reaction to it from different sectors of uh, of the commentariat to be fairly interesting Uh, there are definitely some people arguing that uh, there is no free speech implication here whatsoever uh, that this kind of thing just should be banned because it is evil and it is wrong Um, I don't necessarily disagree with their assessment of all of that but I think it is a little bit more complicated Uh, so this being a, a hot-button issue and having interesting free speech and religious liberty implications, I figured it was a good thing for us to discuss, especially right before Christmas. <laughs> um, I do I do enjoy it. I heard that—I don't know if this is uh, actually true, but it's the kind of thing that sounds like it should be true— um, that they were prohibited from uh, the kind of display they initially wanted to put up because they wanted to use an actual goat skull, and the uh, they didn't want to bother the animal rights people. Like they they were bothered by that, so they just kind of went with this um, thing that looks like it was made in an art studio in the near North Side of Chicago. Uh, yeah, or by... it was
2: made of pool noodles and trash bags.
0: Yeah. Like- it, uh, it, I mean, at a minimum, I think we can say not the best work of art that we've ever seen, even right. by the standards yeah. of Satanists. Um, but, Emily, I'll, I'll start with you. Uh, I guess the general question people are trying to grapple with here is, should this kind of thing be permitted in a place like the Iowa Statehouse?
2: One of the issues here is that under current Supreme Court jurisprudence, Um, Just generally speaking, the First Amendment doesn't let you select between um, viewpoints in a forum. So once you've established that you have a forum, the actual issuing party, in this case, the Iowa state government, cannot say I have this viewpoint or I have that viewpoint. It can't be seen as endorsing Christianity over the Satanic Temple. And generally speaking, the satanic temple is kind of just a troll organization. I don't really think that it does any satanic stuff at all. It's secular humanists, which whatever. Um, What it does is it goes into these public forums like the Iowa State Legislature. In Tennessee, it's the um, after school programs and it forces itself into these forums with the intent that somebody will come along and say, I would rather close the forum because the government entity cannot discriminate than have the Satanic temples, Baphomet um, statue in the forum. Um, So what they want to do is actually force these government entities to remove religion from the public square altogether. So they come in, they do these trolley things. Then somebody comes in and complains and and the state is like, you know what? I am just so fed up with all of this. Nobody gets to do it. Um, Under current Supreme Court jurisprudence, which sucks um, (laughs) to use a very term, very technical legal legal term, yeah, very technical legal term right there. Um, Once you have opened this forum for uh, nativity scenes or any other kind of religious angle, you have to actually open it to all religions to do this. Um, So unfortunately, while I personally don't like it and don't think it should be allowed, um, current Supreme Court jurisprudence says... Yes, it absolutely has to be allowed. And the only restrictions on that are time, place, and manner. Um, and, uh, you know, there's very few things that you can do in these forums. And ritualistic animal sacrifice is probably the most important one. Um, but, and it would have gotten probably removed very quickly if it had the living goat head or the decapitated goat head or whatever they initially wanted. Um But for better or worse, this is where we're at. Now, Lemon versus Kurtzman, which is the Supreme Court case that basically set out this religious test. um, We are pretty close to if we have not already overturned it, but no one has really tested that theory. So previously in previous court sessions, it looked like this Supreme Court jurisprudence had been overturned. But nobody has done this lawsuit um, to find out for sure. So it may be that we can do this and and shut them out if they're not really a actual religion. But so far, this is what we get, unfortunately. So, you know, you get the pool noodle Satan, I guess.
0: This recalls a previous conversation that we had on this program that was about the Church of Scientology and part of the conversation yeah. we had was, well, what constitutes a church and to what degree do we want the federal government determining what is legitimately a church and what is not a church? There is a reality there that they are doing that. Like they, there is yeah. a procedure. Um, and again, in, in, in this case, I think the, the villain here in a weird way, interestingly enough, Is the Trump administration, because it is in 2019 that the IRS in the Department of the Treasury under the Trump administration gave nonprofit status to the Satanic Temple. So right. for a lot of people who have been directing their oppobrium at uh, the, you know, this one state rep who was explaining more or less what Emily just explained there or other people who are making the legal argument about this of like they are now being recognized by the federal government um, in, with nonprofit status and essentially as a religion, uh, that they are entitled to also have space in a public forum place like the Iowa State Capitol. I think the point that Emily made, though, is the key one to me, which is I have really no brief at all for Scientology, but I don't dispute – um, the sincerely held belief of its adherents or its leadership. I do think that in in many ways it operates as a scam. It is tyrannical. Um, a lot of the same kind of arguments are, I think, unfairly leveled at a number of different forms of uh, the Christian Church. Um, I don't. I'm not saying they're comparable. I'm saying that those kind of accusations are made. I think you can make a very compelling case here, though, about the Satanic Temple that it is manifestly not, and you can. Yeah. Use their own words against them. Where they describe is that, you know, they do not have rituals. They do not have any of the practices that you would normally associate with a faith tradition. There are tenets, um, which basically I'm, I'm looking at their website here, which fun fact, not blocked by our, um, our firewall here at the Acton Institute. No, yeah, I, found, to talk
3: to, I found myself Googling what is Satanism on yes, my work computer. Not, yes. Um, but it's not, not a normal not, thing. And
2: the church of Satan the is thing different. Is the church of Satan and the satanic temple actually don't like each other. Yes. So Ages ago, when I, you know, was editing at other publications, we would write about um the satanic temple and we would refer to them as Satanists, and I would get a nasty gram from
0: <laughs> From Satanists, the Satanists. Um whose
2: whose public relations director was also named Karen, which I always thought. That's was kind unfortunate. Of funny. Um, so so Karen from the actual Satanists would be like, no, the Satanic temple is not at all affiliated with real Satanism. It's actually just a bunch of secular humanists (laughs) who like to troll other people. Um, so do not confuse the two because, uh, the Satanic temple just basically exists to abuse the privileges of both the establishment and the free exercise clause. So that it ruins it for everybody.
0: Right here on there about us, the mission of the Satanic Temple is to encourage benevolence and empathy, reject tyrannical authority, advocate practical common sense, oppose injustice, and undertake noble pursuits. Which you know sounds like any of a dozen or two dozen NGOs' mission statements that I have read over the course of my right. life. So I I think that there is a compelling case to be made that this is not actually a religion, that it should not have been granted the five hundred one c three status, that it was granted by the trump administration that that kind of thing should be reconsidered um but in in that sense i think that it is ripe for a legal challenge here to make that claim that this kind of thing is not actually uh compelled that it is a again a troll of people and a troll of religion not an actually sincerely held religious display and I think there's, you know, I, I want to revoice what I said in the Scientology conversation, which is all of this stuff at a level does make me a little bit uncomfortable. And I think I, I imagine Emily will probably echo this as well as Catholics. And given the history of the way that the federal government and state governments have treated Catholicism in the history of this country, I think there's a reasonable uh, reason why this kind of thing makes me nervous. But I, I don't think that this is really um, the kind of obvious case, and I think a lot lot of the people especially there is a kind of uh form or strain of libertarianism that looks at all these things and is uh very leveling in a sense to say like you know all things are equal and all things must be allowed or all things must be disallowed um i read one claim from someone that you know the united states was founded on secularism which fact check incorrect um it you can you know you you can point to Um, The establishment clause and obviously make the point that they did not intend for a national religion to be established. But you can go through the history of this country and states where they had established religions. Um, It is a little bit more complicated than saying that uh, we were founded on secularism. But I think that this is absolutely ripe for a lawsuit to challenge all of this, Uh, and I don't think people who believe in free speech in the First Amendment should feel compelled into a corner where they're taking the side of the satanic temple just for those reasons. I think there are other complicating factors involved here.
2: And I think a lot of this jurisprudence is left over from the 90s, like the moral majority era, and a lot of it from the early 2000s when we had these, you know, nativity scene wars where the war on Christmas and a lot of this came out of that. And so... We have this sort of ancient jurisprudence that was formulated back when people were always at each other's throats and there were really, really like militant atheists who went to court over all of this and formed a lot of it. So there was this wave of cases that happened in the late 90s and the early 2000s that defined how we see religious expression in a public forum. And it's right for change um, because Previously, we had, you know, the Freedom from Religion Foundation and all of these like sort of militant atheists, 501c3s that went to court to challenge every time a nativity scene appeared in a public square. And that's how we got all of this. Um, And the court is trying to rationalize this free exercise and establishment clause down at like a local level, which it really was never meant to do. Um, The establishment clause takes on state-based religions, not in a, a national establishment of a religion, not whether you're Oklahoma, you know, a city in Oklahoma can put up a nativity scene in front of its mayor's office. Um, so the Supreme Court is trying to sort of shoehorn national policy into local government and it, it never works out. The further down you go, it just never works out. Um but you know this is, we have free exercise clauses as well. That's where a lot of this comes in. Um, the Satanic Temple also does a lot of free exercise stuff. So like in the state of Texas, they defined abortion as a necessary function of the t- Satanic temple and in itself defined abortion as a uh, a ritual in the satanic temple in a way to challenge the free exercise clause as well. So they're not really just on this establishment clause thing. They're just trolls across mm-hmm. the board.
3: And we know one thing about trolls, you're not supposed to feed them. So that, mm-hmm. that's one lesson from this. But I think that maybe is one difference between um, the satanists sort of trying to put a, you know, uh, a statue in the, the state house and something like Scientology is that this isn't a sincerely held religion. Like I can't go in or shouldn't be able to go in and say, here's uh, the rubber ducky statue that I'm worshiping and I want my religion to have a spot here. So that's, that's a possible way forward is to look at, is this sincerely held? Is this just kind of a parody of religion? The... Uh, statues seem to be a parody of religion. The abortion um, as kind of a religious right is also just parodying religion. They don't really believe that. And that's clear if you read their writings, if you read uh, different Satanists writing about this is just kind of secular humanism with a nice trollish branding on top of it to get everyone excited.
0: Well, and and to your point, they've done a pretty good job of getting people excited, which, of course, was part of their purpose. But, you know, to again, to support the point that you're making, you know, you can use their own words where they do not acknowledge themselves as being a religion. Um, Again, I just find the hilarity in all of this that, you know, for a lot of the people very exercised uh, to borrow a word about all of this um, again. Take a look at the Trump administration. They were the ones who decided to grant them, you know, official recognition, uh, which complicated the whole process. And, you know, without that recognition, I do wonder if they would have gone to the Iowa state capitol. They would have gone to the Iowa state government and said, hey, we want to put this up there. You know, without being able to show that IRS letter, I imagine they probably would have been told to get lost in the same way that you would have been told to get lost with your rubber ducky statue that you want to put up there. Mm-hmm. Although, to be fair, sounds cute. I might like to see it. Um so i think you know i think people there should be a little bit less rending of cloth and gnashing of teeth over this whole thing it is very dumb it is absolutely a troll uh, but the I, I want to caution against the people whose reaction to this are the ones uh, on the fringes who are kind of most exercised by this kind of stuff. You know, I'm thinking of like the the either the Christian nationalist movement or the Catholic integralist movement who looks at this kind of stuff and just says this is just an example of how, you know, uh, broken and fallen the society is. And we need to be right. ruled by the U.S. Council of Catholic bishops if we're ever going to get back to, um, you know, be- get back to salvation, which, you know, that's a lot of question begging involved in that. Uh, that statement as well. I don't
2: I don't think that just because, you know, somebody puts up a statue made out of pool noodles and trash bags and the um in the Iowa State House means we need to, you know, suddenly have a Catholic monarchy. I think we're there's a lot of gray area <laughs> to, there. <laughs> to
0: be fair, like, <laughs> to be fair, there are a lot of people out there that, you know, it's overcast today. Clearly, we need a Catholic monarchy Clearly is a line of a thinking that they would be engaging in, uh, that they're looking for that justification, no matter what. So um, I, I, I want to note one other thing on all of this, which is the Which I don't, again, I don't think it's good that this was put up. Um, I think that it probably would have been successfully upheld if they denied the petition for it. Uh, And there's a lot of jurisprudence to, to come on this in the future. Also... Stop celebrating the person who went in and tore the thing down. That's not good and that's not helpful either. We should not be celebrating people taking the law into their own hands, even if you think that their cause is righteous like this. Um, That is not the way to go about winning people over to your side. It makes you look like the jerk. And I've just seen a lot of people celebrating the fact that, like, this guy's a hero and he's based for going and doing this. It's all very stupid. Um, And the... I think the right reaction of a lot of adults to this kind of thing is to look at it and point out if you have to to people who are young and impressionable say like that's bad but explain how we're adults about all of it and you move on past all of it and you acknowledge, you know, the symbols of the faith that you practice, whether in public spaces, uh, government-appointed spaces, or otherwise, you make those points and you move on. You do not destroy things in the name of your sincerely held beliefs, even no matter also, how offensive you find them.
2: was super cringe.
0: Yeah, like, not that good. That
2: statue was horrendous. And it's not good. And it's like... Uh, Chicago has this, um, the Kindle market in Chicago has a nativity scene. It has a menorah. And so the Freedom from Religion Foundation sued to be allowed to put a giant A for atheist made out of red Christmas lights. And it just looks dumb. Like if you're looking at this beautiful, massive German nativity scene, this gorgeous menorah that's sitting there, and then there's like this dopey A made out of red like
0: rope light but, probably like, yeah red
2: lights that you get at the dollar tree right and and you're like really come on man <laughs> did you even try yeah
3: i think that's um, a, a good reminder of the you can either just ignore it and say this isn't really sincerely held this will go away in a while and a good reminder of you know real meaning of religions that offer actual answers to these questions yeah They're going to win out in the end. You can't just parody them and have something successful. In fact, the only success that the parody has is by kind of eking out a little bit of meaning by copying real religion. So, I mean, it it doesn't worry me in the long term at all. Yeah.
2: Right. Yeah. And I think in the long term, there will be a challenge. The thing is that the, the difference, of course, is that the satanic temple itself doesn't really pose a challenge to a civil law. So where things have been declared churches and then undeclared churches, it's because one thing that they do runs afoul of the law. So peyote, for example, is a, like sort of the famous example of First Amendment free exercise jurisprudence. You can't smoke peyote and form a church around smoking peyote and think that you're going to be recognized as a church, at least in 1992, um, and the ritualistic animal sacrifice is the same thing. You cannot form a church around ritualistic animal sacrifice and be able to get around the laws. Um, but here, the, the satanic temple doesn't really run afoul of any laws, they're not really that bold. Um, they might kind of err on that side in Texas, but really they're not taking any overt steps to do anything to challenge this other than just to try to make christians angry um and to try to get them so frustrated like i said that they close the forum um so it, it, it isn't really a bold step here it's not like you know uh, native americans actually challenging the law so that they could do a ritualistic smoking um it, it, it's it's just it's just kind of dumb gorky yeah. stuff
0: yeah. <laughs> yep let's move to our third topic noah you had a piece that was published in the magazine fusion uh which is published by the american institute for economic research uh, the headline of that piece is effective altruism's reign should end with sam bankman frieds uh, why don't you tell us what this piece is about and we will put it in the show notes for everybody to read it for themselves but uh you know give give us uh give us the elevator pitch here
3: so, lots of people have heard of Sam Bakeman fried who goes by the, you know, moniker SBF in certain circles, and he was just convicted um, on counts of fraud and stealing about nine billion dollars uh, of customers of his company FTX, which was a crypto uh, currency holding company and then he also had a very risky investment arm attached to that. That's how a lot of the money was lost as well as just spending. We'll probably never know exactly where all the money went. But what this piece is about specifically is a certain kind of uh, philanthropic uh, theory he had and that uh, a lot of people have in certain circles on how you should give away your money. So this is a great thing to talk about end of year as lots of us are thinking about this. So it's called effective altruism. So is that, this is the idea. It's basically utilitarianism applied to philosophy. You should give your money uh, to the causes that will reduce uh, harm to the most people and increase uh, uh, the pleasure or to the most people. So most good to the most people, classic utilitarianism. So I talked a little bit in this piece about how um, his leadership style was really fueled by this moral authority that he got from espousing this particular uh, brand of philanthropy.
0: The thing that's interesting to me about this is it serves as a good reminder as somebody who took a lot of philosophy classes in college and who I think understood utilitarianism very quickly and enough to understand that. It is not an operating philosophy for this world. Uh, I did find the passage in here just kind of a a, a little bit hilarious uh, where I can't remember. I should have highlighted it here, but the the guy who is kind of like the godfather of this movement distancing himself from SBF, from this conviction, and it was like, well, we don't want people to think that this is an ends justify the means kind of thing. It was like, that is literally what utilitarianism is. You know, like the, the kind of uh, intellectual experiment that you would have in the philosophy classes that I took in college would basically to be, say something like, you know, if you could instantaneously improve the lives of two billion people by killing 50 you would. Utilitarianism would tell you that, yes, you do that because you're maximizing the good for all of these uh for all these other people. It is a it is de-
2: literally the Thanos snap. Yes. Right? Literally the Thanos snap. Yeah. And they're like, no, but that's not utilitarian. But yeah, actually, it is. It's a trade off or something. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And, and so. I I find that part of it to be uh, to be kind of hilarious. You also make a good point in here about how that this is just kind of in a way a plaything for a lot of very, very rich people. It is not a philosophy that somebody making, you know, forty five thousand dollars a year can really apply in the exact same way. There's also to me a huge pretense of knowledge problem where you have all of these people who are successful in certain business pursuits. So, you know, you could set SBF aside in a certain way because, yeah, he was very successful at manipulating uh, crypto markets in in a place that's kind of opaque to start with. Uh, But even if you want to take any of the other very wealthy people, and this is a problem that I find applied to politics a lot too, that you have these people who are successful in a business pursuit. They're very, very good at that. And they think as a consequence, They, the same skill set that made them very, very rich will also translate into politics. Or in this case, they think that that same skill set that made them rich will also give them some kind of deep and meaningful insight about, you know, which NGOs out there or which efforts are going to be the best to help the most people. And there just is a reality that they don't know that. that's not to say that there aren't NGOs out there that are doing good work. That isn't to say that there aren't uh, charitable organizations out there that are worth supporting. But this kind of directing of this much money in these specific ways really reeks of this idea that they know best how to help these people. And I come back to one of the I I believe it's from it's either from Hayek or Bastiat and my friend uh, Richard quotes all the time that profit is just a signal that we are serving well the interests of people whom we do not know That markets are much better in helping to serve a lot of these ends than this kind of mass money charitable direction. And it also, I think, does lay the groundwork for the kind of thing that happened with SBF, right? So if the ultimate goal is to make as much money as possible in order to give away as much money as possible, you can understand how it – Creates a permission structure to say, well, I can I'm doing so much good with all of the money that I'm making. So, you know, if we cut a few corners, if we break a few eggs in the name of making this omelet, uh, you know, who's really being harmed? I'm helping so many people. It's serving this utilitarian end. It is just a morally bankrupt way of looking at the world and of operating uh, in it. And um, I would be happy to see it go down the drain along with SBF's reputation.
3: Yeah, I think we can separate it from him and assess it and say, okay, this is a bad way to approach philanthropy. And, And I agree with that. But then if you look at how he operated... I actually think you said he was successful in cryptocurrency. I don't think he was. <laughs> I think he- He's Successful in the way he, that like
0: you would say Bertie Madoff yeah, was he, successful. He was
3: successful in projecting yes. success, yeah. which is you know a big part of success in one way. But I, I think we need, we need to think about what would be relevant to someone who's actually deciding how do I give this dollar? And I want to contrast a little bit from effective altruism versus Something that we talk about in Poverty Inc., which is an acting documentary, in Poverty Inc., there's an emphasis on give to causes that are going to help rather than hurt people. I think we can all agree about that, right? So we want to give to causes that aren't going to create more misery in the world for people, uh, which that's kind of a high bar for a lot of philanthropy, actually, if you look at uh, international giving. But what this does is elevates that to this is the only aim, and if you think about Christian charity, there are other aims. Think about relationship with the person you're giving. Think about um, love. think about the the way you're interacting with people where uh, the intent matters. So there's, I think, a better way forward that we can think about philanthropy.
0: Let's call it a wrap there. Thank you for listening to Act and Unwind. If you're listening to this podcast on our website, please look in the show notes for a link to where you can subscribe directly to Act and Unwind. Or just search Acton Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only, so that more people can find this show. Again, a reminder that Acton Unwind will be taking a break for the next two weeks. We'll be off for Christmas and New Year's. We'll be back on Monday, January 8th. Thanks to Noah. Thanks to Emily. And a special thanks to Mark Clifford for the Acton Institute. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. I'm Eric Cohn, we'll see you in January.